across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We live in very strange times, ladies and gentlemen, as I sit here gazing out over the rooftops of London and the skyline of skyscrapers in the gloom. I find myself wondering where it is that we are all going. Watching the scenes from Washington DC last night, I was filled with a mixture of feelings, really. Sadness, frustration, anger and an increasing need to know why the world has become such a divided place full of people who hate so many other people just because they disagree with each other here on the home of common sense we will never foster any of that i disagree with lots of people about lots of things i can also disagree with them without actually hating them or even falling out with them it's time more people learn to do the same but when you see people dying guns being pointed scenes more reminiscent from a post-election result in belarus in one of democracy's greatest buildings the capital of course in washington dc you know something has gone badly wrong. This morning we'll be asking Baroness Fox of Buckley how this hatred has infected politics so much on both sides of the Atlantic. I'll also be asking her what now for President Donald Trump. Will he sit tight for the next two weeks? Will there be an attempt to remove him? Which in my view would be entirely wrong. Stay tuned. It's going to be one hell of a show. 0344 499 1000. My thanks to Julia Hartley Brewer for the breakfast show this morning, particularly that row she had with the bloke from NHS Providers, who has no history of medical professionalism, can I just say. This is a guy who's been a civil servant all his life. He's been in politics all his life. He writes for The Guardian. He is not in any way, shape or form any more qualified to talk about medicine than Julia Hartley Brewer is, whose father happens to be a doctor. Helen Dale joins us later on with her legal take on Big Tech controlling the narrative, following YouTube's attempts to close us down this week, and Facebook and Twitter's suspension of the leader of the free world's account. I mean, it comes to something, doesn't it, when the President of the United States of America can't even put a post up on Twitter because he's been suspended. Just what is going on? 0344 499 1000. Russell Quirk will also be here to explain what the new laws on leaseholds unveiled today by Robert Jenrick will mean for the people of this country who have been trapped in expensive contracts that can be changed at any time. Nobody's really ever explained to me why leasehold is a thing in this country because I don't think it's a thing in any other part of the world. Plus, LaDonna Harvey reports in from California with the latest on the situation in Washington the morning after the storming of the Capitol building by Donald Trump supporters. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We came back from holiday on Monday, firing on all cylinders, not quite prepared for what an incredible week of news it has actually been. You know, Monday we get Boris Johnson putting us in full national lockdown. Tuesday we get banned from YouTube. Wednesday we get back on YouTube. Uh, but then the Capitol building gets in, uh, uh, invaded by a load of Trump supporters. And Donald Trump basically uh, appears to have been completely blocked and banned from any social media activity uh, for at least another 24 hours or possibly longer. Uh, it's amazing. It's isn't it? Let's talk to Claire Fox, because frankly, only the Baroness can figure out what is going on in this world. Baroness Fox, a very good morning to you. Good morning. And a happy new yes, year as well. Great. Happy new year. I just listened to the exchange with um, Chris Julie Hobson. Hobson, uh, Brewer and her guest. Mm. Yes. And in some ways, it typifies the, the tone of what pa- passes for debate today, mm. which is that anyone who doesn't go along, it seems to me, with what has become an official narrative on anything, gets accused of disinformation, disinformation which is then 
said to be dangerously putting people's lives at risk. And, you know, once you start delegitimizing people you disagree with in such a uh, an intolerant way, mm. it means that any possibility of debate gets thrown out of the out of the equation, you know, because debate itself is seen as a dangerous thing to do. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's, you know, that's I, I, part of the explanation. We we listen to an illustration of it. Um, Julia is not everyone's cup of tea. She's very forthright. Um, but he's been a guest on her show, and yeah. he used the opportunity to simply imply that she was somebody who was dangerous. Yeah. Whose ideas were so dangerous that they shouldn't be heard. But this is the new narrative, and you know a little bit about this, Claire, because you get subjected to quite a bit of abuse on Twitter and social media yourself by people who, in my view, totally misunderstand you, where you come from, what your politics are, uh, and what your actual aims in life are, you know? Um, you are treated, as is Nigel Farage quite often, as this kind of pariah, for no reason other than somebody told somebody that you were one. Yeah, I mean, look... Um, you know, you put your head above the parapet, you have to accept the flak. I understand that. And um, I, I'm also not everyone's cup of tea. But, you know, Twitter is not a place where serious debate can occur. But obviously, we are increasingly seeing that Twitter will take decisions about which views are allowed and mm -hmm. who is banned. And, you know, you're right that um, it seems to me to be a very serious and worrying development that Twitter can remove the Twitter account or, you know, put a 24-hour ban on the Twitter account of, of, of uh, Donald Trump. Yes. Now, of course, I then know that because I've said that on Twitter, people will then say, ah, an apologist for Trump, Claire Fox supports mm. the invasion of the Capitol mm. building. And that's what happens is, you know, you, any nuance, any possibility of discussion is done away with. When YouTube made the decision to remove talk radio without going into the details of that. Mm. One of the things that was horrible about it was that I wasn't shocked. Yes. You know, I, I actually thought this is going to happen all the time now. So where you have a more extended debate, like on talk radio or in any broadcast outlet, i.e. it's not Twitter with its limitation on what you can say, even that is subject to rigorous and quite censorious trends at the moment. And again, somebody in position of power, decides that what's been said is dangerous, not fit for public consumption. And and the people who are making these decisions are no more qualified to do that uh, than you and I. And simply speaking, just because Chris Hopson happens to be in charge of NHS providers, for which, as I say, he gets paid very handsomely on the public purse, 210,000 quid a year. Thank you very much indeed. You know, this is a man uh, who has spent his life in the civil service. He spent his life um, as a sort of a polemicist. He writes for The Guardian. No bad thing. Nothing uh, to stop him doing that. But what he's not is a medical expert. And when he starts telling Julia, oh, well, what you should be doing is watching the BBC report from a hospital, uh, which shows an awful lot of people under a lot of strain in a very difficult working environment, which is probably the same as it would be in any other winter crisis, as this one is, um, you know, you wonder what is going on. But, but say, for example, I mean, I actually think the NHS is under an enormous and, by the way, unprecedented strain at the moment. But my question, which I think Julia was trying to hint at, was why? So it's funny because Chris Hobson didn't answer these questions. I agree with that this is not like any other winter myself, mm. as far as I can tell, that there is something about the contagious nature of the virus, the way it's developed, that's led to more people going in. But that shouldn't mean that we have a health service that can't cope. Mm. But 
it seems that there is a problem, which is there's not enough staff around. So is that uh, because they are socially isolating or they're ill or because um, of any number of reasons? Mm. But then you could say, well, what has the government done? I think the only useful part of that exchange was when there was an admission that the government should have been signing up those former uh, health workers as volunteers and getting them all trained up for now. Why has that not happened? One needs to be able to ask these questions. One needs to be able to ask, well, are more people getting coronavirus in hospitals than we're being told? In which case, that's quite a serious matter. Mm. And in view of the fact they've just brought in legislation, which says that it is illegal to leave home unless you have good reason. Yeah. It is breaking the law to leave your house unless you can justify it. Mm. That is a very serious piece of legislation. Yeah. And if we deny a debate on why that's justified, we are basically rolling over and letting anything happen. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we had a poll yesterday on talk radio saying, you know, do you think that we will ever get all of our rights back? And a rather disturbing number of people don't seem to think that we will. And I had this conversation yesterday with Peter Blexley, a former police officer, and I said, you know, what business is it of somebody in a police car stopping someone, which happened to uh, a person who, who uh, contacted me to tell me, uh, in Redditch, driving around in a car, asking them where they were going and then escorting them home? Because if you're driving, you know, I can understand them trying to stop people from, you know, travelling up and down the country and taxiing. And in fact, if you're driving in a car and you're not getting out of that car, you know, um, what on earth is the problem? Yeah, I mean, the, the point being that they have um, emergency measures are now being brought into place that are absolutely frightening if you believe in freedom and liberty. Mm. And at the very least, one needs to be able to debate them. And it was interesting because Chris Whitty uh, said a, an interesting point. I, I don't necessarily agree with everything. But, you know, it's a chief medical officer. Everybody quotes him left, right and centre to justify lockdowns. But he said in a, in a committee uh, last month that, you know, at some point there's a political decision that needs to be take, taken. And he made the point it was a political decision, not a medical one, mm. about what level of risk society is prepared to put up with. Right. Yeah. And it might be that at the moment, the level of risk that started to put up with is, you know, it doesn't want to risk this contagious version of the virus. Mm. Right. But how are we ever going to decide what level of risk we are prepared to put up with without living under these restricted, inhumane, illiberal, you know, devastating mm. consequences uh, that we've got around lockdown? Well, that's how can right. we debate when it's free to do that if actually debate itself is being demonised. And I've noticed just how easily, particularly opposition um, politicians, by the way, I mean, the Labour Party have led this, mm. are calling for, you know, big tech to censor. I mean, mm. they just say it. Yeah. But almost like prosecution, you feel like you're going to be rounded up if you say right. something. But this is the that thing that we've suffered. Against the grave. But this is the thing, and Julia's made this point as well that we've suffered from here at Talk Radio. That because we are questioning the veracity of some of the data, uh, because we're questioning how it's possible to make these um, draconian lockdown laws apply, despite the fact that there could be collateral damage, which will also cause deaths and which will also cause uh, the livelihoods of others uh, to suffer. I was very pleased to see Charles Walker's speech in uh, Parliament yesterday, which we're going to play out a little bit later on, where it's he said he could speech. he could not vote in good conscience 
Commons. Um, it's not in his DNA, he said, to vote for these restrictions because so many people will suffer. And the fact that we, we, if we bring that up, we are somehow denying that COVID exists or we are somehow telling people not to wear masks. We've never told people not to wear masks. We wear masks all the time in the office here when we come in because that's what we're required to do. The bottom line is, you know, just because you are critical in one area does not mean uh, that you're some kind of maniac. But that goes back to your original question, isn't it? So what happens is if you are somebody who tries to take a balanced view and tries to be critical. And by the way, scepticism is now used as though it's an insult. Yes. Uh, Scepticism has actually been the basis on which science has developed historically over the years. I mean, you know, if you don't have sceptical scientists, you do really believe, or scepticism, you really do believe that the earth is flat because you actually have to ask questions. Historically, that's how we've moved on. So now, of course, being called a sceptic is the equivalent of, uh, of, you know, kind of like the scarlet letter. Yes. Um, It's absolutely uh, uh, deemed to mean that you are an irresponsible fool. Whereas I think asking questions is important. The problem is, and you asked me about the Trump issue, Mm. um, and in a way this kind of gets back to it. If you are somebody who doesn't go along with the mainstream narrative, you you vote against what what the kind of good people believe uh, to be the right outcome. Uh, Originally, uh, people voted for Donald Trump, and they didn't vote for the, the, the sainted Hillary Clinton as was deemed the right thing to do mm. by, by the right people, yes. then suddenly you are treated as though you are a pariah and your views are somehow always assumed to be the most extreme. So, you know, a small group of people invaded uh, uh, um, um, the, the White House yesterday or uh, the Capitol building yesterday, um, and that will now be seen that the millions and millions of people i've already seen people say this who voted for donald trump in the when he lost the election recently that they are all to be seen as a threat to democracy mm. and that's why it becomes such extreme so if you or i ask some skeptical questions about a government policy, which it seems to me that unless we're going to say that democracy should be just abolished and we just go down a kind of Chinese route, what are we saying? That anyone who doesn't go along with what the government has told us is the only choice at the moment, anyone who queries that is to be deemed to be a COVID idiot, a COVID denier, Mm. uh, doesn't care about old people dying, et cetera, et cetera. What happens is you force an, an, an artificial polarization you don't allow anyone the middle ground, right? You don't allow anyone any nuance mm. because even if you try and make a nuanced appeal, you're uh, so demonized that you kind of get thrown into the same camp as, you know, people who I do think are, as it were, <laughs> rather out there, yes. outliers, right? right? Now, it's not that I, I defend their right to speak too, but when you can't make that distinction, when there's guilt by association, when everybody's lumped in together as a way of delegitimizing their views and demonizing them, then it either has the effect, which it has had an effect, of silencing people, intimidating them, making them think that they can't speak, or it almost forces a kind of coarser, uh, 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 discourse because I get so frustrated you know if I'm trying to say something a bit subtle and then suddenly there's a pylon actually you know not just by trolls but by quite respectable people who kind of with big followings who yeah. decide to like launch at me and call me somebody who is as you say denying the that COVID even exists mm. that you know is something like complete lunatic in other words uh, all of these kind of things once they do that then you start to get shrill 
in your own defense. I mean, I understand. I do it myself. Do. I don't yeah. want to. I want to be calm. I want to be, you know, I don't want to block. I, I try and answer uh, queries. I try and be reasonable. And I still carry on and treat you like this. Yeah. You get kind of hysterical. And, and I think that that you is. You do. Being... You get sort of punch drunk, don't you? You just start lashing yeah. out. Yeah. And I think that happens on all sides, by the mm. way. I mean, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that it's also unhelpful that uh, I, I know and I've, I've, I've had this argument with people who, as it were, call themselves lockdown sceptics. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, people I, I have a lot of time for, but they say that, you know, anyone who didn't vote um, against the government yesterday is a wuss, mm. a traitor, has given up. You know, you just think, oh, come on, do mm. us a favour. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I, I, and and there are people at the moment who are arguing, I disagree with them, but there are people at the moment who are generally antagonistic to lockdown culture and have been really consistent on the cost and price of lockdown, but who think this lockdown is necessary because of the mismanagement of how we've dealt with COVID before, the mismanagement of the, the NHS, and they are convinced by the short, sharp lockdown until we get the vaccination rolled out. Now, I disagree with them, but to then have, as it were, COVID, um, uh, uh, lockdown sceptics, calling them traitors and selling out, I don't think helps either. No. So what I'm suggesting is that we don't try and introduce the uh, motives or the or, 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 or people we disagree with, but we actually have a, 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 an open discussion because mm. I just don't see how we're going to get out of this unless we listen to each other. And if I'm wrong, you know, if Julia's wrong, if, if, if any of us use the wrong statistics, how will we ever know that unless we're allowed to say it mm. and then somebody can, you know, take us down, right, and explain it? Yeah. That's what free speech is for. Exactly. So we can correct each other. Baroness Fox of Buckley, brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, as ever, making complete and utter common sense, because this is the home of common sense. We'll see you soon. Baroness Fox there telling us very, very sensibly what we need to do here is continue to talk, not shout, uh, not stop punching one another, not breaking windows, not pulling guns, actually talking. That's what we do here at Talk Radio. We are the home of common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Very uh, provocative and interesting conversation with Claire Fox earlier on uh, about the need for us all uh, to be a little less intolerant of other people's views, a little less intolerant of those who disagree with us, because where it leads, we can see over in Washington, D.C. Let's talk now to Sarah Elliott, Chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Sarah, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. I think it's still okay to say a happy new year, but I must admit, um, I see America very much as my kind of adopted country. Um, You know, my daughter was born there. I lived in New York for 10 years. You know, I was in uh, the Capitol building many times when I worked in America. You know, to me, it's it's part of my kind of, you know, fabric of life, if you like. And it was such a terrible thing to watch last night. Yeah, it was extremely disappointing uh, and and just shocking. I mean, I I completely condemn it. Um, that was not the behavior of the vast the vast majority of the seventy plus million Americans who voted for Donald Trump. That this is something you see in a banana republic. This mm. is not something you see in a constitutional republic. Uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the darkest days for American democracy, I'm afraid. Yes. I mean, one of the things that people have said to me, and I don't know what your view is of this, is it seemed relatively easy uh, for the protesters to get inside the building, which under normal circumstances I would have thought would have been incredibly difficult. Well, I, there was actually, the footage I saw, there was plenty of Capitol Hill police, um, you know, in vests and, and, you know, with batons or tear gas trying to keep them at bay. Right. 
but um, it, it is the people's house. Mm. It is open for people. You go through security and metal detectors, but it, you know, it's supposed to have an open feel to it. Um, but we've never had this kind of threat before no, either. No. So I, it's very unprecedented. It really is. I mean, I was listening to um, a report on another station earlier on this morning, and they were saying that um, there's been a YouGov poll. That actually, sorry, I, I, I take, tell a lie. I'm doing myself a disservice on our own station, on Julia's show. Um, uh, there was a YouGov report out, a survey done, where as, as many as, I think, 40% of Republicans um, were not sort of condemning this act on the grounds that they do feel that there's been something wrong with the election result well i think there there have been um definitely irregularities that need to be looked into but you have to look into it within the structures and institutions of the democracy and excuse me i have a nine-month-old don't worry Um, don't worry they're um, always welcome (laughs) yes she has an opinion but it's it's the thing is, is that we are a land of the rule of law, of laws. And you, you want to challenge the, the election, you do so through the Electoral College and through, not by violence, and you do it through courts and through proving your case. And the president did not prove his case. He did not make his case, and the electors were certified. Mm. And you have to live with that outcome, whether you like it or not. Absolutely. I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because, you know, America is the land of the free. Um, You might not like the way an election goes, but the election uh, is certified by people who are trustworthy. You know, unless you want to start believing this uh, nonsense about the deep state running everything and somehow paying off, um, you know, lawyers and judges and everything else in the world. If you want to live that way, thinking that way, then you're never going to be happy with anything. Um, But it's time that Donald Trump now just accepted it. Um, And presumably, you know, what we know about Donald Trump is that he's a showman. um, And in some respects, although this was a very deadly enterprise that happened yesterday, um, it was it almost felt like it was a show for him. Yeah. And, and, you know, it it just kind of reminded me of, um, you know, in the movies like Scarface when he's all by himself and it's just he just shoots everything and goes on a rampage. It was not dignified. It is not the office of the president of the United States. My biggest upset with this is that it overshadows the accomplishments and the good things his administration did do. I mean, I did not vote for the man in 2016. I did not vote for president that year because I couldn't decide. I didn't know if he would actually govern as a conservative. He did. He did some wonderful things like the Abraham Accords, making peace agreements in the Middle East. Uh, He helped really help the economy by deregulating and lowering taxes and putting some great judges on the courts. That's all wonderful. Guess what? Because of his behavior after the election, he lost two Senate seats for Republicans. And and this is how people are going to remember him. He had people storming the U.S. Capitol Mm. and he didn't do an address from the Oval Office condemning it. He did weak tweets and a weak, you know, um, audio uh, recording. I just think that you know and and unfortunately because of losing the senate seats his wonderful the wonderful things he did do um for limited government pro-family conservatives will all be unraveled in the next two Mm. years by a radical left administration of which joe biden will just roll over and rubber stamp and that's the worry isn't it because obviously um, he did stand up to china which was a massive thing as well for the u.s and for the rest of the world the same china by the way who will not allow the world health organization into the country 
to examine exactly how this whole COVID nightmare <laughs> began, right? There's a yep. funny thing. Um, I yep. can't believe as well that we hear people from the left in this country uh, saying that, well, look at China. They've managed to control the virus. Well, yeah, that's because they take people out and shoot them. You know, that's yep. not where we want to be. But Joe Biden, Kamala Harris and a Senate which is going to be compliant to their White House uh, is going to be quite a worry, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, there is nothing moderate about Kamala Harris, okay? And she's obviously positioning herself for 2024. It's also the Obama administration part two because of everybody that's coming in is from the Obama administration. And they were a complete disaster on international affairs and domestic affairs as well. I mean, it's not a good situation for America, but it's also not a good situation for America when the extremes of both parties are, are... kind of calling the shot mm. and um, and i really you know i i am condemning in this most strongest fashion what happened yesterday but you don't hear the left condemn antifa and no. what they're doing right. and what they did over the summer with black lives matters protesters and they they were the rioters and in fact last night they were still rioting against a federal courthouse in portland oregon which yeah. they've been doing for six months straight well portland so, oregon has been in flames pretty much for six months yep. straight hasn't it and i mean yep. joe biden took a very long time to condemn that yeah and, and, and i think he just did it mildly in one speech yeah. there's not been a forthright and kamala harris has said that these protests are going to continue she defended them she even even put up bail for Antifa, who were uh, arrested in Minneapolis mm. after George Floyd, as did 13 Biden staffers as yeah. well. And so I, I want to say... hear condemnation from the left, too. Yes, of course. And I have to say, Sarah, you know, it was a long time ago when I lived in the States, but I go back there regularly. My family still live there. I have a son in California. My sister's in Connecticut. My mother's there. You know, I don't remember when I lived there. And I lived there during Reagan's time, um, during the beginning of the Bill Clinton administration. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of extremism just wasn't there. Where did it come from? I think it's it's a complete. La- it's grown over the last twenty years. Well, I would say, yeah. I mean, maybe longer, maybe, but but it's really taken hold in the last twenty years. And I think it's a lack of trust with our institutions. Mm. And I do believe that the media, the mainstream media, plays a large role because they take a side in the debate. Um, people don't believe what the mainstream media is pushing forward, so they go find their news elsewhere. And they become the journalists and they do they piece together circumstantial evidence to create these theories and these ideas of what's really going on. Mm. And it's extreme it, and it happens on both sides. Yeah. And it's exceptionally dangerous. You know, I mean, we've had a huge financial crash. We had the dot com boom. We've had huge income inequality grow. Um, it, so all of this and then you put it under the pressure cooker of a pandemic where you see that the working class is actually supporting the upper and middle classes because they can stay home and work from home. But Mm. the working class serves them by being the delivery drivers uh, and the service workers and and the frontline workers. And you know what? It just is just a huge pot that's ready to explode. And I I think we're seeing that happen in America right now. Mm. But we need to get back to establishing trust in our democratic institutions and the president could have led in that way post the election and he didn't and it's really disappointing especially for me who who took you know i put my head above the parapet and i've come on your show before to defend him and his administration and his policies which i agreed with 
But I do not agree with this behavior, and it's a shame that it will overshadow his legacy now. Yeah, and he's clearly broken ranks, I guess, with the Republican Party, Mike Pence. Um, yeah. I mean, in, the, yeah. in the modern vernacular, it was actually a news story last night when Mike Pence unfollowed the president on Twitter, which I found quite bizarre. Oh, um, oh, yeah. But where does the Republican Party go now? Because they need to find somebody as a candidate for the next four years. Well, I think it goes the route of Mike Pence, and I think this is Mike Pence's moment. It'll be interesting to see what Mike Pompeo uh, does, because um, I, I think he has aspirations. Of course, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, were backing the president in hopes to win mm. this base of support in four more years. I think their presidential hopes are done because of the violence. Um, it, it's... It, you know, Mitt Romney has reestablished himself in the Senate by his speech last night. Um, you know, I, I think Mitch McConnell has been vindicated to some degree. It, it's just um, but right now, I think all eyes are on Mike Pence. Yeah. Fascinating time. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to us. Sarah Elliott, chairwoman of Republicans Overseas. Another sensible voice, because that's what we like here uh, at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We've now got a second Highlights channel uh, for all sorts of things like the highlight that we're about to produce right now with Mr. Lewis McLeod. Lewis, a happy new year to you and a very good morning. Happy new year. Happy new year, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing very well indeed. Now, are you in the frozen north? Because it's been a bit chilly down here. I dread to think what it's like up in Scotland. Actually, I went to Wonderland out there. It's snowing. It's great. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I was told uh, when I was speaking to somebody not uh, unrelated to you the other day that there's been an awful lot of people falling over on the ice and, and lining up outside hospitals. <laughs> uh, well, this is... I never mind COVID. Out my way, I've got a sore arse. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, right, I thought you couldn't buy a drink anymore in Scotland. That's obviously not the case. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! There's, where there's a will, there's a way. Yes. There's people drilling holes in trees and putting straws in at the moment. It's, yes, it's uh, uh, anything. Now, before we get to the momentous business of what's going on in Washington D.C. and the White House and all the rest of it, let us talk a little bit about uh, one of your good friends, Mr. Jeremy Vine, uh, because a piece today by Howard Cox from Fair Fuel uh, is claiming that poor old Jeremy Vine is anti-motorist. I mean, surely this is not true. Well, I don't know, but let's be honest, the cycle lanes are just a little bit too narrow, are they not, Mike? You just need to look at Notting Hill. We need to take those trees down or make the cycle lane go round like a figure of eight and just use more laneage. We need more lanes. We really do. Absolutely right. Boris Johnson's had an interesting start to the new year, Lewis, because, of course, uh, he's announced a full lockdown, uh, which nobody's quite sure is any more full than the last full lockdown, which we were already in. Um, I know you guys have been struggling up there, but what have you made of Boris's new year resolutions? I, I well, you know, the what you want. Well, yesterday I was I, I was so impressed yesterday. I mean, I learned a word yesterday from Parliament. I don't oh, know yes. if you saw it. I did see Desmond, that. Desmond, Desmond Swain. Yes. Oh, that was brilliant. I mean, we cannot play tennis or golf, notwithstanding the assault on liberty and, and livelihoods. Why are these regulations pervaded by a petty fogging malice? <laughs> but I, well, I thought well, this is a, a substitute for the effort. But of course, then Boris comes in and mispronounces it. Yes. And it's a bit. You know, in the Stan Boardman territory of them fuckers, uh, he, he put a K in it, you know. So, of course, I, and I thought, what do you want? And that, to me, is the, the New Year resolution. We need we need archaic language mm. uh, to to uh, to sort of assuage the the inability to uh, show any humility in these very serious conversations we're having at 8 p.m., mm. where we are being told exactly the same 
that we were told <laughs> six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, ten months ago. Right. Although apparently it turns out we're back at square one, I'm afraid, Boris, haven't we? We, we, well, yes, of course. And that's a good, it's a defensive square. Let's be honest. We get tiers one, two, three and four out the way. And then whoa, we go in and we sort of give everybody the needle for the next two or three years. Do you think he's got a book of Victorian phrases that he occasionally refers to, <laughs> like uh, with a following wind? I mean, he talks like the way nobody else in, I, in my world talks, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, maybe he's being read stories at night by Jacob Rees-Mogg. He kneels at the side of the bed. Here's one. Now, Thallus said to Thallus. <laughs> I don't know. I do like it when they get that kind of Victorian or even beyond before that, you know, it becomes... You know, they'll be reading Latin soon. Yes. It's great. I love it. I mean, normally today we'd have um, uh, a week of Prime Minister's questions to fall back on. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't do mm. it yesterday, really. Um, but of course, we did have a bit of uh, old Ian Blackford, um, who's gone remarkably quiet <laughs> um, this week, really. Um, I wonder what his question would have been if he'd had one. How dare you, Mr. Squeaker? <laughs> and with the right honourable gentleman, Mr. Squeaker, <laughs> let me say. Look at me. I may have gained two or three pounds, but I have got the will of a warrior. A warrior, look at me. How many layers do I need? This is me. I'm prepared. The SMP are prepared. We've got 100,000 vaccines rolling out all over the fields. We're giving them to cattle first. So don't you dare, Mr. Squeaker, say to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be a bit of asking for money as well, because obviously Blackford never speaks without saying how Scotland has been ignored uh, for years. Know, give, us years. Right. give us a 20 pound <laughs> note. <laughs> well, now that we're out, you see, see, my girlfriend's French, right? And I, I've um, been in the house for a week without a French girlfriend who happens to be a chef. Right. And so if Nigel was saying something about it, let me be honest with you, I, mean, I know we're wanting out, and let's be honest, Michael, <laughs> it's, it's very important because I've got my French Sharon test slippers here. I've got the translations and everything. That's what well, I don't have is food. I'm eating right. the bleeding cat food. Right. I've gone to seed, Mike. Have you sent her home then? Is that what you've done? Has she not got yeah. right to remain? <laughs> <laughs> get out it's a good excuse get, get out <laughs> well, she's coming back on saturday thank all right God. does she but, have to go uh, in, yeah, does she have to go to quarantine then yeah well t yeah 10 days we'll be, <laughs> i'll be like bars i'll be putting the food under the tray under the door and, yeah. you know and things like that. and cat food never yeah, mind the cat food you've eating the cat <laughs> <laughs> go through the cat she's got that face looking at me yeah there's my keeper <laughs> Why haven't you got anywhere for three weeks? No, it's, it's yeah, it's pretty dire. Well, how bad um, is it? I mean, presumably everybody's now just locked down. It's like the, the entire United Kingdom, right? Well, yeah, but I, you know, I've been doing, I've been walking, and I've been doing these little Facebook videos, which have been a good laugh just right. to keep me relatively sane. But yes. I've been walking's okay, and if you've got the chance to go and just get out for a half hour, you know, whatever, just do it because mm. it's. It's pretty. Mind well, you can't. I mean, well, this is it. I mean, you, rank, you, you, you just can't really stand um, staring at the same four walls, can you? For the for the rest of time, it's just not going to work for so many people. Is it? In fact, you know, yesterday in Parliament, one of the MPs actually did make a really good point. Charles Walker, we played out earlier on. He just said, you know, for for people like us who make a living and can make a living uh, on uh, on Zoom and sitting in studios yes. and talking nonsense, that's fine. But for real people who actually have proper jobs. You know, it's really yeah. tough. Oh, yeah, and still no money for freelancers. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've got friends. That, they're really... It's, they've got to do something about it. It's out of order. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I think things like... I've been painting. I did a, 
I've, only, I've done my third painting in about 30 years. Was it matte or gloss? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, B&Q, orange, silver. Very nice. Gloss, five. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's been all right. It's just you know it's just a bit slow. I know. The cat's looking at me, going, "When are you going to finish this crap?" <laughs> it uh, your cat talks like Donald. <laughs> I hope you get that done. Come on now, I went and fed here. <laughs> I'm sick of sitting looking at you with a being cute in a pain. I know. Wash. Absolutely brilliant. Now, fine, we've got to finish up, and and I know that there were some terrible things that happened last night uh, in Washington yes, DC, but let's let's look ahead to the inauguration because obviously. Um, you know, there's only two more weeks uh, left for the presidency right now before it changes hands. Um, can you imagine what that's going to be like on the, a very cold January the 20th uh, in well, Washington, D.C.? You know, you're going to have the rectus face right away. Oh, and it'll be... And the sad thing is, of course, it pulls focus from this momentous event. It'll be all about what happened and it's, it's been terrible mm. um they, they should never have been allowed but the thing is it's, it's the fortification that you're going to see is that these beautiful buildings this mm. amazing history they have about um, politics in washington and american history yeah. it will all become fortified i think and that's a, that's a shame because yeah. uh, we all like to know how many people are going to turn up but it'll be about 10 people there with the you know, with the security. With the security, be, you know. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I told you, look at that. There's nobody here. You got a cheek. Look how many turned up for me. <laughs> oh, it was awful. But and and Giuliani. Well, ah, they were all. The, the, see, the thing is, for me, with Kavanaugh, with what happened in the Supreme Court, where the Republicans used that as as um, a, a way of saying, look, you know, look at the Democrats. They're all crazy. They bang doors. They turn up and they heckle and they shout. They're screaming and the pot kettle. I mean, uh, what happened? I thought it was like night in the museum. It was like. I was waiting in Ben Stiller telling all these guys dressed as a teller the hunt. Look, I got a lectern. I got a lectern. I know. It was very oh, it strange. Was horrific and, and really tragic, ultimately. It was awful what happened. But know? I guess you're going to have to now do the next four years just with Mr. Joe Biden in charge. Well, you know, I listened to his speech yesterday and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, hey, we, I get what he's saying. You know, I had to go on TV. That's all good call. And, you know, these words written by Kennedy can, can inspire or incite. But don't you think it's just, he needs to take a shot of something. I don't know what it is. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> Sildon Affle, here we go. Wahoo. He needs. You're that guy that used to follow shot. Keith Richard around with the suitcase. I think that's what he needs. <laughs> Hello, that's who we need. We need Keith Richards to go up and say, look, Mr. President, I'm sorry, I'm not two metres, two metres. Take this bag I've left for you. Have a little go. Needle, needle. Thanks, Keith. I feel great. I feel like a million dollars after tax. Brilliant stuff. Fantastic. Lewis, have a great new year. Thank you so much for joining us. A bit of levity, I think, much required uh, in these dark days that we're living through. Lewis McLeod, uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Lewis. We will talk again, I'm sure. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, time to go back to the US of A. LaDonna Harvey is with us uh, from San Diego. She is, of course, the breakfast host of KOGO Radio. LaDonna, Happy New Year. Very good morning to you. Well, you know, we made uh, we made it through five days without uttering complete chaos. But, you know, uh, 2021 just said, hold my beer. Well, listen, I came back to work on Monday, right? 
thinking that after a reasonably uh, relaxing Christmas and New Year, I'd have a gentle kind of roll up into uh, into 2021. On Monday, we got put into lockdown, uh, proper national lockdown by the Prime Minister. On Tuesday, we got banned by YouTube. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, the Capitol building got invaded by Donald Trump uh, supporters. So I don't know what's going to happen later today. Well, uh, I'm waiting for locusts and maybe, you know, the rest of the four horsemen. I, I, I'm not really I'm not really sure. I, you know, honestly, I did not see I did. I did not see this coming. And I suppose I should have uh, just because, you know, there has been so much unrest fomented in this country. Mm. Uh, you know, people on the left hate people on the right. Nobody will accept an election. You've got, you know, two elections now that fully half the country says the wrong result happened. Yes. Well, I was asking uh, that question you know, this morning, you know, LaDonna, why have we become so polarised in this world? Because it's not just in America. Uh, it's also here in the UK over Brexit. Um, people are absolutely raging at other people just because they disagree with them or they vote in a different way. It's quite depressing, really. Well, it's depressing. And I and you know what it is? Um, and I will tell you right off the bat, I think it's social media. I think it's Facebook and Twitter where you can hide behind your keyword keyboard and say anything yeah. you want to anybody in the world. You can send that negativity and that crap mm. out in the universe and nobody pops you one in the nose right. for being a, a disrespectful jerk. Yeah, and on, uh, and on Facebook know. in particular, uh, which, you know, perhaps sort of promotes itself as this bastion of, of fairness, right? There are all sorts of groups which, which, which occupy Facebook from all sides of the political spectrum where if you join them, you might think that everybody thinks the same as you do. Right. And and that would be a mistake. It's everybody in that group. You know, uh, a very smart man once told me, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you should leave the room mm. uh, because your your circle is too small. Yes. Um, and and unfortunately, you know, we have stopped listening to each other's um, different opinions and we have decided that it is OK for somebody's different opinion or differing life experience, for mm. God's sake. Yes. Uh, to be vilified because it's not your life experience and it's not how you see the world. Right. And I mean, let's look at what happens now, because, I mean, you know me, I've got a great affiliation with America still. Um, we talk every week, you and I, you know, we have so much in common as the two countries right. um, of the Atlantic uh, kind of divide, if you like. Um, and I watched with, with a sort of tinge of sadness last night, really, because I just thought this is just not what I want to see. You know, this is not the country that I used to live in. This is not the place that I used to enjoy going to. I mean, I spent many a happy hour inside Capitol Hill uh, in the White House, you know, in Ebbets Grill and all that. You know, I love Washington, D.C. And I don't recognize it. No, I don't either. And I don't recognize the people. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fully for expressing your political opinion. I am fully for uh, doing so in the most American way possible, which is to gather in a big crowd of people and go, I hate the other guy. Hmm. Uh, if, you know, if, if that is what makes you happy, you should do that. There's nothing more American. Uh, when you storm the, the Capitol buildings uh, and interrupt uh, an actual constitutional process because you're having a hissy fit, and that's what it is, you two-year-old babies. Yeah. Uh, it's a hissy fit over the result that you didn't want. Um, well, now we have a problem. And now I'm starting to see, you know, this this very un-American way of dealing with things. And I'm frankly tired of everybody's tantrum. Yeah, I am exactly. very sick of it. I know. And I can hear it in your voice. I mean, we've basically got another two weeks of Donald Trump in the White House. Last night, there was talk of people launching some kind of um, 2025th Amendment. Is it to try and remove him? I don't think that would work. I don't think it'd be a very good idea. Oh. 
Yeah, just, you know, shut up and let the process pay out, everybody. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, two <laughs> weeks is... is he's maybe, on his way out. Yeah, I mean, two weeks might seem like a long time, but it passes pretty fast. And then, uh, you know, in two weeks' time, you know, I don't particularly uh, hold a candle for Joe Biden. I don't think he'll be a particularly great president. But, you know, it's time to move on, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, you know, and I don't and I don't have uh, any particular affiliation to either of these men. Mm. Um, I don't think that Donald Trump is a is a saint and I don't think that he's a sinner. I think he's right there in between like most of us. Yeah. Uh, and he's being replaced by a guy who's just as middle of the road as he is. Mm. So welcome to help people. Yeah. I mean, the idea that somehow I don't this is the other thing that I find fascinating is when was it that people suddenly became so trusting of their politicians? I mean, I've always had a very healthy disregard <laughs> for whoever happens to be prime minister, regardless of what party they come from you know i don't trust them i imagine that they're in it for themselves if we're lucky enough to get a reasonably altruistic individual who actually does some good then i'm all for it great fantastic but you know these people are not the savior but we seem to have this kind of cult now of personality in in politics where you know everything they do has to be either great or everything they do has to be terrible Right. And, and, you know, most of most of what they do is terrible. And occasionally they stumble and fall into great. Yeah. Is what happens. Right. Uh, and that's and that's every politician of every stripe. Hmm. Um, yeah. But we've decided that, you know, there's good and there's evil and there's nothing in between. You know, you're either Hitler uh, or your Jesus. Mm. And, and and there is no in-between for people anymore. No. And I guess the question is, really, those people who uh, invaded Congress last night, you know, where do they go, as it were, now? Because all sorts of ridiculous uh, uh, sort of allegations are being made on social media. I know we probably shouldn't keep bringing them up, but, you know, some people say that, you know, they were all Antifa supporters. And, in fact, it was all a hoax. Right. And that they were somehow let into the building because that everybody knew it was going to happen. And, I mean, I must admit, I was a bit surprised at how easy they they were able to gain access to it well i was too and you know and i and i think that when people point out that if this had been a black lives matter protest this result would have been very different mm. i think that that is an absolute that is absolutely an observation that should be made mm. um it's although there was Antifa. there was a woman shot dead i mean on the other hand i mean imagine if uh, that had been yeah if that had been a black lives matter um a situation and somebody had been shot dead by the police i mean we would be talking about it in a different way as well um, we absolutely would. I mean, there's a lot that, you know, we seem to think that, you know, one again, you know, one side is good. If, it, if it's Black Lives Matter or Antifa, they are automatically, you know, it, depending on your perspective, uh, saints or the sinners. And, you know, quite frankly, if you're breaking crap and burning crap down, uh, you're the bad guy mm. in my eyes. Yeah. I, you know, if you are peacefully protesting, you're just fine. You have every right to do it. But light a fire uh, or, yeah. you know, get somebody shot. And suddenly I don't like you that no. much anymore. I mean, they could have walked round and round and round the Capitol building. I mean, I've been there. There's plenty of sure. uh, availability to do that. It's a very wide um, sort of, you know, boulevard, as it were, around uh, around that area. They didn't have to go inside. No, they did not. Uh, they didn't, you know, and, and all it takes to turn a bunch of really good people into a mob is just a few really bad people who are just stupid enough to pull a stunt like this. Mm. And, you know... Uh, taking a picture of yourself in Nancy Pelosi's office with your feet on her desk. I don't know what you're saying, um, except that, you know, you got to sit in her chair for a bit. It's kind of thing we used to do when we were at university. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. When we knew everything. Right. 
And so I guess the question is, LaDonna, and, and I'm sure you would want the answer to be positive here, um, how does America kind of heal itself after this? Because clearly half the country voted for Trump, half the country voted for Biden. There's a kind of small um, acknowledgement that one got slightly more than the other, but that's basically where you are. Um, what happens now? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I think that really depends on, on the supporters of Joe Biden and the supporters of Donald Trump. Mm. You know, can you come together in the midst of this horrible time in America and the world and try to find some kind of common ground to work together to make the country better? Yeah. Um, or are you still going to you know, post up signs that say, not my president? Well, I got news for you. If the guy was voted in and you're an American, he's your president. Exactly. I, I don't care if he's orange or, or 150. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a shame that that's the choice, but, you know, there we are. Right. <laughs> but, you know, exactly. uh, so there, there, we are. there will also be a reckoning, I guess, for the Republican Party as well, because it would now seem as though Donald Trump has kind of slashed and burned any com communication or relationship that he would have. So the idea that he will now run again in four years time for the Republican Party, I, I would think is is for the dustbin of history, uh, which I always thought it would be anyway. And they now have to look for a candidate. Right. Uh, right. And and I don't know how the Republicans really recover from, uh, you know, either, you know, being his water carrier in some cases. Uh, and then, you know, those who who are called never Trumpers, mm. um, if, if you're a supporter of Donald Trump, you look at the never Trumpers and you are never voting for them again. Mm. I mean, it's a it's a fractured party. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump will probably run as an independent. Uh, I don't know what his chances are. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know who the Republicans come up with at this point. Yeah. I really don't. I would have thought he might have had enough of it. By the time we roll around to January the 20th and he starts thinking about maybe forming his own TV company or his own channel, you know, maybe that's a more appealing idea to him. Because he obviously doesn't like losing. Yeah, but he hates, to, he hates to lose. I know. And he lost, and it's just eating him alive from the inside. He mm. wants another shot at the brass ring. Yeah. Well, I guess we shall see in the fullness of time. But LaDonna, thank you very much indeed. Uh, LaDonna Harvey reporting into us from KOGO in San Diego, uh, California, uh, from whence the woman who was shot dead inside the Capitol or just outside of it uh, was from, actually. And so, you know, it does lead to some terrible things happening. This ridiculous polarisation, this ridiculous nonsense of making sure that you must hate the person who voted a different way from you. We live in democracies, people. You have to get used to losing sometimes. Sometimes you have to understand that the other side had more votes. And, you know, I don't want particularly to see Joe Biden becoming the next president, but I'm afraid uh, there isn't much anymore that can stop him from doing that. And certainly there is no evidence that the votes have been in some way counted wrongly. If there was, and if there were, they would have said so. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, because so many children are now home again from school, uh, we've carried on with our homeschooling segment. And I'm delighted to say uh, we welcome a good friend of the show, Christian Walmart, uh, transport expert, author of the story of Crossrail. Christian, a very good uh, morning to you. Happy New Year. Uh, good morning, Mark. I'm delighted that you can uh, spend time on this really busy news day <laughs> to talk trains. But well, I think we all need a bit of relief after watching the scenes last abso night. Absolutely right. And, and you know, the thing is, there are people who are slightly obsessed with what happens on the other side of the pond. And I can understand that. 
Um, but an awful lot of people actually aren't that bothered about it uh, as far as, uh, you know, their ordinary everyday lives are concerned. And if you're a busy parent um, sitting at home, they hopefully uh, have got used to getting a little bit of respite from me at 12.30 uh, and they get to learn something they didn't know anything about. And steam trains, and I immediately thought of you, Christian, because I know you're such a train enthusiast and I'm not even going to mention HS2. I'm just going to talk about steam trains because um, uh, I was talking to Marta, our producer, yesterday and I said, well, obviously he'll want to talk about Stevenson's rocket um, which she hadn't heard of. And I mean, you know, Stevenson's rocket is just sort of in my head as one of the first ever steam trains. Um, yes, absolutely. I, I suppose the, the, what I'd really like to convey to uh, all your young listeners and some of their parents as well is the importance of the railways, um, that the railways were really the development that brought the Industrial Revolution, which had happened sort of in the late 18th, early 19th century, mm. uh, and spread it throughout the world, because at the time it was really confined to uh, northern England, the northern powerhouse, the, the real Silicon Valley of the late uh, uh, 18th century. Um, and if it hadn't been for the railways, and in particular the steam engine, which uh, powered the railways for the first uh, 100, uh, 120 years of its existence, if it hadn't been for uh, the steam engines, do you know we probably wouldn't be talking to each mm. other over our amazingly sophisticated uh, devices and this phone I'm holding up in a rather daft way to <laughs> ensure you can see me. Um, I mean, it, it, the, the steam engines, just think about this, Mike. Before the arrival of the railways, how did people get around? Well, they mainly they walked. Right. Uh, a few lucky ones maybe had a horse and cart. And uh, uh, if you were well off enough, you could take a stagecoach from London to York, and it would take you a couple of days right. on a really bumpy, uncomfortable road. Yes. So then some bright spark, uh, maybe James Watt and Trevithick and various other pioneers had the idea of, of uh, steam engines, and then uh, Trevithick put a steam engine on some wheels. Mm. Now, that's a, a, a brilliant, oh, well, wonderful uh, shot you've got there for those who are watching uh, on Sky, on, uh, sorry, on... Uh, on YouTube, yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> on video. Um, uh, so uh, you've got the idea of putting uh, a steam engine on wheels, mm. but the roads were really lousy. The right. roads just couldn't take uh, the weight. So therefore, you had to put them on rails. And that's how... Uh, the steam locomotive, and as you said, uh, uh, Stevenson's rocket and various other pioneering uh, engines that were mostly used for mines mm. initially uh, but, uh, to help coal mining, but later were used for carrying freight and carrying passengers, most notably the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, which opened in 1830, which is the first proper railway. Right. So that's how the idea developed. And so sometimes people say, well, why couldn't they just operate on roads? And mm. that's because the roads were no good, right. the engines were too heavy, and so we got railways. And they dominated the transport system, really, for about 100 years. Right. It really wasn't until the 1920s that you started getting mass uses of cars. Mm. And it's incredible, isn't it? Because when you look at that uh, that scene that we're seeing now of a of a, a train going over a viaduct, very high over this um, you know sort of curvature uh, of, of of a valley, and it really is quite a remarkable feat of engineering to go from sort of nowhere to invent the steam engine, to put it on wheels, to build railways that it can travel on, and to then build those kind of viaducts for it to to, to be able to get across very undulating landscape. Now, look. 
it's a series of amazing doors. Of course, it didn't happen all immediately. Mm. It took really about, I suppose, 40, 50 years from the idea of uh, having a steam engine, putting it on wheels, building uh, railways. But then it was incredibly fast. Mm. So we get the, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, which is the first proper railway linking two major towns, Liverpool yeah. and Manchester. Within uh, 10 years of that, 1840, we had about eight, 900 miles of railway. And another 10, 10 years, we had five to 6,000 miles of railway. Mm. So can you imagine that nowadays, kind of a, a, a program of building uh, so rapidly, such a massive kind of... Uh, well, now, come on, and, you said we weren't going to talk about oh, HS2. <laughs> no, no, we won't go there. We won't go. I, I, I was heading there and then realised we don't want to talk about it. No. But um, let me talk about my latest book, Mike, okay, is the story of uh, the London stations, mm. right? We have 12 major London stations, right? Terminus stations, yes. King's Cross and St Pancras and uh, Paddington, Victoria, yeah. and smaller ones like Marylebone and Fenchel. There's 12 of them. Do you know that all of them, with the exception of Marylebone, were built between 1836 and 1874. In other mm. words, in less than 40 years. Wow. Now, can you imagine today building, you know, 12 major stations, all with all the paraphernalia, the, the arches and whatever yep. that were used to connect the railways, all the signaling systems, the locomotives, the trains, the passenger waiting rooms and mm. all the facilities. And doing all that 12 times in the space of 40 years. I know. I mean, it's just... It's, it's just, amazing. You, I mean, it took the best you know, part of 10 years to modernise London Bridge, you know, which only reopened, what, a couple of years ago. And they weren't, weren't even building it. They were just changing it around a bit. I mean, it's, it's a very magnificent structure and it's all great. But, you know, yeah. they took a long time to do that. Yes. And and so uh, when I when I write, you know, write my books about the railways, really what I'm trying to tell people is that you know, we shouldn't neglect our history. Mm. And of course, I mean, one thing we can really be proud of is that really the British invented the railways. Mm. They, the Liverpool and Manchester was the world's first proper railway. We invented uh, the Underground Railway, uh, 1863. Uh, uh, that was that steam when it first opened as well. Sorry? Was that steam when it first opened as well, the Underground? That was steam, when, and now that's an amazing kind of uh, bit of history mm. where you know, you went on what is now the circle line and yeah. it was all steam, wow. right? And then we built the first tube railways where you dig underneath, uh, uh, you don't actually come to the surface, you mm. dig a hole underneath, mm. a long tunnel. That was 1890. And so we, we have all these fantastic uh, achievements and a wonderful heritage. And, uh, you know, I'm an advisor to the York uh, National Railway Museum, and, and that is such a place worth visiting. Oh, yeah. Well, that is where the next thing I was going to ask you about was the Mallard, which was the fastest train, I think, steam ever created. And that sits in the York Museum, because I'm pretty sure I've seen it there. Yes, no, it, it does. And that, that was uh, uh, in the in the 1930s. Uh, they began to, now this was a mistake in a way, they began to think, you know, all you had to do with steam engines is make them better, make them faster, make them more efficient. And so uh, we had these uh, effectively races to go between London and Scotland. And then they decided to, to run uh, Mallard uh, in the 1930s. They ran it 126 miles an hour. It was a test run, right? It wasn't, it wasn't with passengers and a kind of normal kind of uh, routine right. journey. Nevertheless, that was a, a fabulous uh, achievement. Mm. 
but then we we somewhat made the mistake. Like, look, I love seeing steam engines, and that that shot you had uh, on your bit of film there of, of a steam engine, absolutely wonderful, gorgeous, and mm. fantastic. But we bit made the mistake of sticking with uh, steam rather longer than we should have done. So when when the railways were were nationalised in in 1948, uh, they built a whole lot of extra steam engines. Whereas other countries in the world, which incidentally had also nationalised their railways, uh, were putting on diesels and in particular electric trains. Mm. And electric trains really represent the future. Yes. And tell me about um, the export of steam, because uh, obviously other countries got steam engines and steam trains as well. But one of the things that always puzzled me, and that is why the gauge system that we have in this country is not the same as the one in Europe. Why did they make it a different size? Was it just to be awkward? Ah, no, no, and it is. Well, there's a little <laughs> bit of confusion there. This is a bit technical, uh, uh, Mike. But um, the gauge, which is the distance between the two rails, mm. is four foot eight and a half in Britain, and it's four foot eight and a half in nearly all of Europe, uh, not Russia, not Spain, but the rest of it. Um, and in fact, is the same in America as well, which is rather odd. Why, why would that happen? That's because initially we exported the technology and so I suppose they said, well, you know, you might as well move the locomotives to, to, to uh, the same side. But what they did in Europe that was different, and, and we've come to regret, was they built uh, trains to a larger scale so mm. that they could be higher and wider right. than our trains. And that means that uh, you have more space for, for passengers, uh, you, you have uh, more space uh, upwards to, to put freight on in particular, mm. Um, and it makes it uh, you know, easy. It's more expensive to build the tunnels, of course, but it makes it easier to transport kind of uh, to have double deck trains, in fact, which is something I'm a big that... fan of those. I've been on those in yes. um, in, in uh, Paris, which I think are fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They have big double deck trains which carry lots of people. Uh, very efficient, slightly problematic getting it on and off them. And I had my pocket picked uh, last time I was on one, but that's irrelevant. Um, and uh, so we, we unfortunately can only cope with slightly smaller trains. And, and that is a bit of a barrier to... Uh, well, yeah, because imagine if we could have... Having if we could have double-decker trains, but I'm assuming you'll say, well, an awful lot of them wouldn't be able to run anywhere because of the bridges in this country. We seem to have an awful lot of lower bridges than most countries, so, you know, they wouldn't be able to do that. But imagine how much... You don't need them now because nobody's on them, but, you know, in the days when people used to cram themselves into, you know, southeastern trains from Tunbridge Wells into London, imagine if you could have two decks. It'd be great. Absolutely. That there were, in fact, British Railways in its early days had a couple of sets of uh, double-decker trains, which ran, I think, from something like uh, uh, London to, to Gravesend or somewhere mm. like that. Um, and uh, they were quite successful. And that was a route which didn't have too many tunnels that needed to be uh, extended to, right. to fit them. The problem was that so many people wanted to get on and off that the doors weren't quite big enough. And so uh, they proved uh, to cause delays at rush hour. Mm. Now, of course, all that would be changed now. I mean, I don't think rush hours are ever going to come back in the way that you and I have known it in the past. I think that the whole thing is going to change. But, mm. but that's kind of slightly taking us off the subject of the wonderful steam trains. Yes. Well, we're going to end with, with, with a, a question. Um, what's your favourite train journey, Christian? Uh, I, well, okay, I'll, gi I'll, I'll give you two, because in, in the UK, it's definitely 
settled to Carlisle uh, over over the uh, uh, the hills there is absolutely uh, fantastic. Over the Lake District, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely uh, gorgeous. But uh, my favourite has to be Switzerland, mm. where uh, uh, the Bernina Express, which goes up uh, from Ticino in in uh, Italy up to uh, uh, St Moritz and then down again to Kuhl, right. in the middle of Switzerland. And that is just astonishing. I took it about three years ago on my honeymoon, in fact. Very nice. Um, go past a lake, which is so still, it absolutely mirrors the, like the, glass, yeah. tree, the, the mountains next to it. Hmm. It goes up to incredibly high mountains. Uh, it is just the journey, you know, that should be on everybody's bucket list. Yes. Well, I'm going to give you mine. I'm going to say the um, what I used to take quite regularly, funnily enough, and in the news is Washington, D.C., the New York to Washington Metro liner, which is now the really? Acela, the fast one. When you go down really? over the you go down over the Maryland coast and you cross all these beautiful bays, which is where Maryland crabs come from. And it's just stunning. You know, the Atlantic um, and some of the beautiful kind of little towns with all the boats and the marinas and everything. Absolutely stunning. To Baltimore, yeah, through yeah. Baltimore. Yes, I've done that one. Yes, it's really good. It is lovely. It's yes. really good. And also, if you're on the cellar, it's pretty much first class all the way, and you can get uh, a table service, which is always nice. Always good. Excellent. Well, Christian, great to see you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, good to have a conversation that doesn't involve an argument for a change. <laughs> so we shall see you again, I'm sure, uh, as we talk about the more important parts of the uh, railway network. But that was fascinating. And I think steam trains, I mean, you can still go on them. If you ever do get a chance uh, to take your kids on a steam train, it really is a great day out. And they will always love it because they'll just look at you and go, what on earth is going on? Why is all this steam? Because it just looks incredible, and it is incredible, and it's a fascinating world of uh, of revolution, as uh, as Christian said. If it wasn't for the invention of the steam train, um, you know, God knows where this country would have been. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.